So um, for many people, the holiday season is not always the most wonderful time of the year. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 64% of the people surveyed report that holidays make their emotional condition worse. The holiday season seems beams a spotlight on everything that is difficult about living with depression, said a woman who responded to the survey. The pressure to be joyful and social is tenfold. Approximately 755 of the overall respondents reported that the holidays contribute to a feeling to feeling sad or dissatisfied. 68% financially strained. 66% have experienced loneliness. 63% too much pressure. 57% unrealistic expectations. 55% found themselves remembering happier times in the past. While um, 50% were unable to be with loved ones. Sorry, Lord, give me strength. Uh, perhaps for you, uh, it's not the holidays that are the problem. It's everyday life. Perhaps your family relationships are strained or even broken. Perhaps your job is difficult. Or perhaps the people you work with are backstabbing or seemingly impossible to please. Perhaps you're struggling to pay your bills or struggling with health issues. Maybe you're single, desiring a spouse. Perhaps you're struggling with the death of a spouse or divorce. Or perhaps you're a teenage child stuck in a home with bickering parents. Or perhaps you are a parent whose children have walked away from the faith. The list could go on, but for the Christian, and I'll qualify that as especially for the Reformed Christian who has a deep understanding of God's electing power and his hand in providence. How should we think when faced with difficult circumstances in our lives? If you're less familiar with the term providence, the Shorter Catechism defines that as God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. In short, that means that God is wise, in control, and that he has ordained all that shall come to pass. So given that truth, how should we respond to difficult providences? The primary text we'll be using tonight is Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 9. That can be found on page 699 of the Red Pew Bible. So when it comes to preaching God's word, it's a good practice to make the main point the main point. So before we begin the work of exposing Proverbs 30, or even reading it together, uh, I'd like to address two themes our passage is not directly dealing with, and deal with one technical term related to biblical hermeneutics, which is our method of translating the word of God. So first, the two themes our text is not directly addressing. When dealing with the topic of God's providence, some might be tempted to use the reality of providence as an excuse to throw their hands up in submission to God and do nothing. They might argue, who can resist the will of God? Or perhaps they've taken Jesus' instruction on anxiety out of context. 
when he told his disciples in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, or what you, you will put on. Brothers and sisters, do not be anxious. does not mean do nothing. To be clear, Scripture does not justify slothfulness or lack of striving. (coughs) Slothfulness, as used in Scripture, refers to laziness, sluggishness, or indolence, which is the avoidance of activity or exertion. The slothful person is not one who who is, is one who not only doesn't want to work, but one who avoids it as well. We can see the slothful person dealt with in other portions of Scripture, like Proverbs 19.15, warning that the lazy person will go hungry. In 2 Thessalonians 3, we see that not even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if you would not work, you should not eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. The busybody is one who goes from house to house, chatting, both avoiding work and distracting others from their work. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Eating your own bread, of course, assumes that you, the work required to make your own bread. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry, say that already. In Proverbs 24, we see that the sluggard will not prosper. I passed by the field of the sluggard, but the vineyard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man." With these exhortations, I think we can clearly see that God's providence does not give us an excuse to be lazy. Secondly, the text is not intended to justify a lack of industry or initiative when faced with providence. Industry is the systematic labor, especially for some useful purpose or the creation of something of value, or can be defined as diligence in employment or pursuit. So beyond being lazy, resting in God's providence does not mean we stop striving for a better life, more contentment, more joy, better relationships, more holiness, more opportunities to serve, the work required by a young person to prove themselves marriageable, desiring a spouse, even a better position at work to provide for your family. These are all good things that scripture exalts And it's a good thing for you to strive for these things. Second Timothy tells us that this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. In Genesis 2, God gave man a wife because it is not good for man to be alone. Now Jesus did tell his disciples not to be overly concerned with what they would wear or what they would eat. But he also sent them into the mission field prepared and prepared them for great suffering on his behalf. So if this is not the main point of our text, then what is? So I'll cover four main points in dealing with God's providence. One, 
Recognize God's providence in your suffering. Two, develop a correct attitude toward God. Three, find rest in God's character. And four, seek to please God. Recognize God's providence in your suffering. Develop a correct attitude toward God. Find rest in God's character. And seek to please God. Now for this technical detail that I mentioned before we read our verse. In my efforts to make the main point the main point, um, I would rather you hear the heart of God through his intended meaning of the context or the passage than get distracted by intellectual musings. But in this case, I need to do a little bit of that ahead of time to accomplish uh, my goal. So you've probably realized that folks and at Andover use, tended to use different versions of the Bible. Pastor Neil preaches from the NAS. Others use that as well. Jamie preaches from the New King James. Some use King James, and I'm guessing there are some other versions here represented here as well. Now, if you open the Red Bible in front of you, you'll see that it's an ESV. Um, even though I prefer the New King James, I tend to use the ESV when preaching or teaching here uh, because not everyone who walks through the door walks through the door with a Bible. And I don't want to risk confusing them when they try to follow along. Well, providentially, by using the ESV, I found a little secret. <laughs> um, so the versions I mentioned are all faithful words for word-for-word uh, for word interpretations of God's word, but sometimes the interpretations vary. As I read today's text, and as you follow along in yours, we'll need to deal with significantly different interpretations of verse 1 between the ESV and most other translations. In this case, I think the ESV translation adds significant value to the message. If you'd like to follow along, again, you can find that on page, uh, what did I say, uh, 699 of the Red Pew Bible. Otherwise, uh, please turn to Proverbs 30 in your own translation. So if you're reading from most translations, and that's as far as I know, I didn't do an exhaustive study, but uh, every, every modern translation other than the ESV, um, Proverbs 30, 30 verse 1 reads something like this. The words of Agar, the son of Jacob, his utterance, or oracle, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal. Okay, I'm trusting most of you are seeing that in your translations. If anybody's reading from the ESV, the ESV reads this way. The words of Agar, son of Jacob, the oracle. So far, so good. Then verse 1, part B. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, and oh God, and worn out. So, again, comparing the two, the second part of that verse, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Yukal, or, I am weary, O oh God. I am weary and worn out. So what's going on here, and why are the translations so different? It, it does have something to do with the source text, as you would guess, but... If you have footnotes in your version of the ESV, you will see that this rendition of the verse is called a revocalization. Now, the pastors can correct me if I get any of this wrong. Um, but according to the sources I found, 
The writing system for the ancient Hebrew language only recorded consonants. The vowels were remembered and passed on as oral tradition from one generation, as one generation taught the other how to recite the scriptures. Much later, during the 10th century, Masoretic Hebrew scribes added symbols to show which vowels they were reciting. This was useful because Hebrew was becoming a dead language. As the number of people who were truly fluent in Hebrew decreased, it was important to record those vowels. Sometimes the vowels they recorded are for words which are confusing and don't make a lot of sense in the context that we see them, we find them. So a revocalization is essentially adding those vowels. And in this case, it's a proposal for an alter, al, alternative reading of the word with different vowels. If we keep the consonants the same and in the same order, there are often alternative options for words using those consonants with different vowels. And I was thought about holding up a, a poster board, but I won't do that. But if you just take my name, Stan, S-T, S-T-A-N, and you take out the vowels, S-T-N, how many vowels can you add? How many words can you come up with? Right? There's, there's several, right? It could be Stan. You could add a few vowels and get Satin. If you capitalize that, you could turn it into Satan. Or it could be Stain, right? Those are just a few examples, right? So it's, it's, this is not meant to say we don't know what they said, but there's very few cases where um, some folks were confused by the, uh, the common interpretation, and in this case, the translators of the ESV decided that the alternative vocalization from the Masoretic text in verse 1 was the most likely. So instead of just making it a footnote, they made it the main verse, and they footnoted what you commonly see in the other versions. So hopefully that's somewhat clear. So with that understanding, let's read our whole text uh, from the ESV. The words of Agar, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has descended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with a food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Now we'll work on the exposition of the text and weave in some applications. So first, who is this author? Well, right up front, people disagree on this. So uh, Agur was his name, or his character, or his occupation. 
Literally translated, agar means gathered or collector or compiler. He's also described as the son of or ben, Jacob. Jacob translating as obey or obedient. So literally translated, agor ben, Jacob could mean faithful collector. We also have the problem that it's the only place in the entirety of scripture that these names appear. Some believe this man was uh, someone who just compiled the sayings of Solomon. Some believe he was a faithful Ishmaelite. Others, that he was a sage or wise man. Um, And that notion seems to support the translation saying that he was prophesying to Ithiel or Eucal. Also, the name of Eucal only appears in Proverbs 30, and Ithiel only appears one other place in the Bible, in Nehemiah 11.7 but there's not really an apparent connection there. So still, others believe that Agar ben Jacob was just a fanciful name for Solomon himself. Either way you look at this, referencing Charles Bridges' exposition of the proverb, we should be content to believe that it was written by a holy man of God as he was moved by the Spirit. 2 Peter one twenty one. Well, so then, that's the author. What is the circumstances the proverb addresses? Well, the circumstance seems to be great affliction. We can see in verse 1, as the ESV reads, that Agar is completely worn out. It's as if he's been striving to remedy this situation, but to no avail. In other words, I've tried to fix this. I've done my part. I strove to the point of exhaustion. I'm at my wit's end. Can you relate to that? I can look out here. I know some of you can. Brothers and sisters, how many of you have been to this point where circumstances in your life were pressing down on you so hard that no matter how hard you tried to fix the problem, you simply could not? Or worse, no matter how hard you tried, the situation got worse. I trust that if you've lived into your adult years, you know the pain of this suffering. Children, Young adults, if you've not known this type of grief, you likely will at some point in your life. First Peter 5 reminds us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So in other words... Everyone suffers to some extent. What's more, you can count on suffering in your life if you belong to Christ. Jesus reminds us in the book of John that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that it's through our suffering that our faith grows. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So, Christian, if you hope and pray for your faith to grow, if God is working in your life to sanctify you, you can count on suffering. So to our first point then, recognize God's providence in your suffering. 
If you're striving to do the right thing, to be holy and to please the Lord, and you just can't make headway, or you can't easily fix the problem you're facing, you should consider that God is providentially dealing with you for your benefit. His purpose may be to strengthen you, or it may be to sanctify you in some way, but it is not to destroy you. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So one, recognize God's purpose in your suffering. Verses 2 through 4 address the second point, develop a correct attitude toward God in your suffering. Agar states, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. So not only has Agar worn himself out trying, he's got it so wrong, he considers himself stupid for trying. Friends, I hope I'm not the only one who feels that way. I have horribly messed things up. I have said and done things I desperately wish I could take back. Agar also seems to be confessing that he failed to consider that God was providentially working through this difficulty. He says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Joel Beek, the president of the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, summed up the whole theme of the book of Proverbs this way. Proverbs instruct us to live a wise life governed by the fear of God and the desire to please him. Agur is admitting that he lacks wisdom in this situation, and this is evidenced by his failure to consider who God is and what hand he is playing in Agur's circumstances. Proverbs 9.7, of course, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that means that knowledge and wisdom aren't simply attributes that some people have and other people don't. Wisdom is learned. It requires thinking and understanding. It requires careful consideration of who God is in relationship to man, learning how to please him, and then taking purposeful action to please him. We see in Hebrews 5 that wisdom is a process that increases over time with practice. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment or wisdom trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. James 1.5 states, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who generously gives to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So Agur has recognized that his human attempts have failed and that he needs to learn wisdom from God. Next, we see Agur taking an attitude of humility before God after he says, I have not learned wisdom. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. This is Agar's way of saying he is not in control of his circumstances. And how dare he question God's providence. Brothers and sisters, this is the only right attitude before God. God is not our buddy. He is not the big guy upstairs. God is holy, holy, holy. 
and we are condemned rebels at best. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I ask, do you mean that when you pray it? Do you really want God's will to reign supreme in your life, no matter the cost? Are you willing to suffer greatly that he will be exalted so that he can have his way in your life? Are you willing to remain in a difficult situation until you have changed, until you have submitted to his will? More than that, are you willing to have trouble added to trouble until you reach a point of total submission to God? In Isaiah 46, we hear this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So contentment in affliction comes from recognizing that he is God and you are not. When we recognize that we can't change our situation, that our striving is vain, and that because God is faithful, he will not stop until he has had his way, until you have conformed, until you have been sanctified. Not the person who's afflicting you, not the person you wish God would change, but you. Then, in 1 Peter 5 we read, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we learn to trust God by relying on his goodness and his promise to complete a good thing in us. You may also hear echoes of Job's confession from chapter 42 of that book. After striving with his counselors and justly complaining to God for extreme suffering, Job finally confesses and repents. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Does this sound a little bit like I'm too stupid to be a man? We also have the example of Paul who suffered more than most for the cause of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, Dangers from the Gentiles, 
danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. And what fruit did this suffering bring to Paul? We read in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul learned the secret of contentment by recognizing the value of Christ and by submitting to the mighty hand of God and by resting in his character. So now our third point, find rest in God's character. Listen to Agur's words in verse 5 and 6 as he submits to God's power and authority. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found to be a liar. Agur has shifted his disposition from striving and justifying until exhausted to complete rest and trust in God. He recognizes God's word as pure, and he recognizes God as his shield. He accepts that God gets the final words with no additions. We can see that Agur trusts God with the outcome. And so finally to our fourth point, be content in God's wise provision. In verses 7 through 9, we see that Agur has developed a quiet contentment with whatever God sees fit to provide. But he still asks for good things that he knows will please God. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Brothers and sisters, that God really does know what is best for you. Now, perhaps there are some here who don't really get this sermon. Maybe you think you deserve a better life, a better spouse, a better job, parents that understand you. Children, maybe you think you deserve to be fed only the foods that you like. Pizza every night that your parents shouldn't be able to tell you what to do. If that's you, then it's likely that you have not come to know God. For if you know him, then you know you deserve death and the pains of hell forever. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But let's not forget that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So repent of your sins and believe, even today, even right now. But count the cost, because if God loves you, he will begin to sanctify you, and he will not let you get your way until your way is his way. So, to close, if you're facing a providence that you cannot change, or at least can't change with further sinning against God's clear commands, one, recognize God's providence in your suffering. Develop a correct attitude toward God in your suffering. Find rest in God's character. 
and be content with God's wise provision. I'd like to conclude with reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision uh, that I think captures a right attitude toward God and his provision. This is meant for the morning time, but I think we can adjust. Almighty God, as I cross the threshold of this day, I commit myself, body, affairs, soul, friends, to thy care. Watch over and keep, guide, direct, sanctify, and bless me. Incline my heart to thy ways. Mold me wholly into the image of Jesus as a potter forms the clay. May my lips be a well-tuned harp to sound thy praise. Let those around me see me living by the Spirit, trampling the world underfoot, unconformed to lying vanities, transformed by a renewed mind, clad in the entire armor of God, shining as a never-dimmed light, showing holiness in all my doings. Let no evil this day soil my thoughts, words, hands. May I travel miry paths with a life pure from spot or stain. In needful transactions, let my affections be in heaven, and my love soar upward in flames of fire, my gaze fixed on unseen things, my eyes open to the emptiness, fragility, mockery of earth and its vanities. May I view all things in the mirror of eternity, waiting for the coming of my Lord, listening for the last trumpet call, hastening unto the new heaven and earth. Order this day all my communications according to thy wisdom, and for the gain of mutual good. Forbid that I should not be profited or made profitable. May I speak each word as if it were my last word, and walk each step as my final one. If my life should end today, let this be my best day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Father, it would be hard to pray a better prayer than this. We just ask, Lord, that you would take these, this message, these points, your word, and uh, deeply change us, Lord. Help us to see your goodness and providence. Help us to accept your will over ours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.